Welcome to the teaching ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Santa Maria, California. Join our pastors as they share biblical principles of God's transforming grace so that you may learn God's word in order to live God's way. Uh, we take discipleship seriously here at Grace. If you would like to be discipled by someone or you would like to disciple someone, please fill out a connection card and put your information there and just write on the back, I want to be discipled or I can disciple someone. We have materials for you. We are in Matthew 26, continuing our series today, which we've titled Follow, Making Disciple, Making Disciples. There's no surprise that we will be talking about the gospel today because it is Easter. But let me warn you, to understand the gospel and to be efficient at making disciple, making disciples, we must go to the darkest, most hideous places any human being could go. We must see things today that no one wants to see. Did anyone ever tell you that? That in order to make disciples, you must go to the darkest place? Let's pray and we'll begin. Father, we come before you. We do thank you for the hope of the gospel. So we enter this message with joy because Jesus took our blame. He bore the wrath and we stand forgiven at the cross, Father. But to get to the cross... To get to the resurrection, Father, we must go to the dark places to see what your son experienced and the lengths that he went to to bring you glory, to fulfill your plan, and to bring us to you. So would you open our eyes to a familiar story, and would you help us to see the weight and the gravity that fell upon your son? as he carried out his mission. And may, may you cause our hearts to love you more that we want to go tell people about them and disciple them and teach them to follow your son Jesus. Help us, we ask in his name. Amen. One of the most frightening and hideous scenes from the Bible will unfold before our eyes today. No Hollywood horror movie can compare with the horror that we are going to see today. What Jesus saw that night in the Garden of Gethsemane, what he experienced at Golgotha on the cross... We will see in God's word today what Jesus saw on that night before he was betrayed and what he experienced the day that he died. We're going to continue with the darkness of Monday, Thursday. There'll be light at the end of this message. We'll get to the resurrection, but it's going to get very dark. And it must get dark. And we must embrace the darkness so that the light shines ever brighter and looks even more beautiful. We will get front row seats today to the most hideous, frightening, alarming, terrifying, petrifying, hair-raising, spine-tingling, blood-curdling, bone-chilling, horrifying, nerve-wracking, fearsome, unnerving, and eerie scenes in the Bible. We are going to the Garden of Gethsemane, then we are going to Golgotha, and then we are going to the grave. What was this most horrifying scene? Turn with me to Matthew 26 and look at verse 
36 with me. The first truth that we're going to see out of God's word is this. Jesus experienced unbounded torment of soul as he confronted absolute wrath and total abandonment from his father. Look at verse 36 of Matthew 26. Then Jesus went with them, with the disciples, to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Let's set the context here. Jesus had just celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples where he inaugurated the new covenant, which would come to fulfillment later on through the cross and through the resurrection. He warned his disciples that they would fall away and turn away from him, and they all denied him. But after this solemn announcement of his disciples falling away, Jesus and his disciples went to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane was situated on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and it becomes the setting of one of the most horrifying scenes in the Bible. It is here in the Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus will experience unbounded, unlimited torment of soul as he confronts total abandonment and absolute wrath from his father. So Jesus takes Peter, James, and John aside with him, away from the other disciples that they may pray together. And Matthew tells us that Jesus began to be sorrowful and troubled. These two words in Greek connote this distress, a a deep grief, a trouble, an anguish. We begin to see that Jesus is overwhelmed here. And he confides in these three disciples about the emotional torment that he was undergoing and experiencing. Look at verse 38. Then he says, then it says, then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Here we see a different word for very sorrowful in Greek. Matthew uses an even more intense word in verse 38 than in verse 37. Now, the distress of Jesus is even more heightened. He is very sad. He is deeply grieved. The full weight of what was about to transpire was quickly descending upon Jesus, the Son of God. So we must ask ourselves today... What is it that is causing Jesus to be so overwhelmed? Is it his impending death and the physical suffering that will precede it? Or is there something more hideous and appalling than the physical suffering that he must endure? Matthew is driving home a point to us. Jesus experienced unbounded torment of soul as he confronted absolute wrath and total abandonment from his father. And so he leaves the disciples again to pray. Look at verse 39. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed saying, My father, if it be possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, 
So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed. My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again, he came and found them sleeping. For their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. It is going to take a miracle for us to see what is transpiring here. This horrific scene is far beyond our understanding. We are only going to scratch the surface today. But we must plunge ourselves into the darkness of this scene and pray for our eyes to be opened to see what Jesus saw before him that night. As the old hymn, Give Me a Sight, O Savior, states, Oh, help me understand it. Help me take it in what it meant to thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. And this is what we need to see. Here in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is beginning to confront head-on the deepest agony of the cross. And this agony will go far beyond the physical suffering of the cross. What causes Jesus to be so overwhelmed here is the contents of the cup that he must drink. Picture Jesus with his face on the ground, overwhelmed by what is about to happen. And he prays, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. In Luke's gospel, in Luke twenty-two forty-four, he tells us that Jesus was sweating so much that his sweat was like great drops of blood. Falling to the ground. But why? Why all the stress and emotional torment? Why all of the agony? Why is Jesus sweat like great drops of blood? Why is he praying to the Father? His request to his Father reveals the answer. He says, let this cup pass from me. But what is the cup? What is Jesus talking about? What is this cup that he must drink? What is in this cup that Jesus saw and he does not want to drink? The contents of the cup are the most hideous, the most frightening, most alarming, most terrifying, most petrifying, most hair-raising, most spine-tingling, most blood-curdling, most bone-chilling, most horrifying, and most nerve-wracking, and most fearsome, and most unnerving thing that any human being can face. The contents of the cup is the wrath of a holy God intended for the sins of those who would trust in him. That is what is troubling Jesus in the garden. He is coming face to face with the wrath of God. Jesus experienced unbounded torment of soul as he confronted absolute wrath and total abandonment from his father. The cup of wrath that Jesus will drink of is spoken of in Scripture 
as the judgment of God against sinners in several places. Psalm 75, verse 6 through 8 says, For not from the east or from the west and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Habakkuk 2.16, The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. Jeremiah 25.15, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath, and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. Revelation 14, 9 through 10. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. So the cup that Jesus asked to be removed from him is a picture of the wrath of God against sin, against your sin, and against mine. No wonder Jesus falls on the ground and prays to the Father. No wonder he begins sweating great drops of blood. He has come face to face with the reality that he will bear the sins of his people and he will become the target of God's righteous wrath. So it is not the physical suffering of the cross that Jesus is asking to be removed from. It is a pain that is far greater and far deeper. He will become the center of God's wrath and anger. And in that moment, he will be completely abandoned by his father because of sin. John Piper recently said, What is the greatest obstacle between you as a sinner and you with every need and desire met and eternally happy in God? What's the greatest obstacle between being a sinner and having your joy unleashed in in Jesus Christ? Most of us would say our guilt or God's wrath. Romans 8.32 says, God's love for his son is the biggest obstacle in the way. Could God, would God overcome his cherishing, admiring, white-hot, infinite bond with the Son and hand him over to be lied about, betrayed, denied, abandoned, mocked, flogged, spit on, nailed to a cross, pierced, and butchered? That is the biggest obstacle to my salvation. And the text says he did. God did not spare his own son. He gave him up to the worst possible suffering. Jesus experienced unbounded torment of soul as he confronted absolute wrath and total abandonment from his father. This is why Jesus experienced this unbounded, unlimited torment of soul and distress and agony. Because he would experience 
his father's wrath and be abandoned on the cross. What makes this setting, the Garden of Gethsemane, so interesting is that Gethsemane means olive press. In Jesus' time, they would take olives and and roll a massive stone over them until all of the oil was pressed out and ran into a container that they could catch it. So it is here in the olive press that Jesus will be pressed and squeezed in his soul as he confronts his destiny to redeem the elect people of God. He is squeezed in his soul and sweats great drops of blood. He is in a garden. What happened in the first garden? Our father Adam sinned and turned away from a good, gracious God. And it is back in a garden that Jesus will be pressed and squeezed to bring us back to the father. William Lane, commenting on Jesus going to the garden to pray, says that Jesus went to be with the father for an interlude before his betrayal, but found hell rather than heaven open before him. This is why Jesus asked the father if there is another way. Is there some alternative? If there is some other way, Father, would you provide it? Do I have to be separated from you? Must you abandon me and pour your wrath out upon me? Obviously, Jesus hears nothing from the Father, so he prays a second time. My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. Jesus hears nothing. He knows he must drink the cup. Then he prays a third time. Matthew tells us in verse 44. But he knows that this is the way. This is his Father's will. He must experience God's wrath and anger. He must be separated from the love of his father. He must drink the cup of God's wrath to its dregs. He must drain every drop of God's righteous anger. Why? Let these familiar words give you one reason why Jesus became the target of God's wrath. And then we'll let these familiar words segue us to our next truth. But what are those words? For God so loved the world that he gave. Don't you love those words? John 3.16 means so much to me that God loved so much that he gave his son. Oh, we're so familiar with that verse, but let it be new to you today. Let it be fresh that God loved so much that he gave his son. That the obstacle that separated us from him, the white-hot infinite bond of love and admiration and cherishing, God gave his son. C.J. Mahaney says, as we watch Jesus pray in agony in Gethsemane, he has every right to turn his tearful eyes toward you and me and shout, this is your cup. You are responsible for this. It's your sin. You drink it. This cup should rightfully be thrust into my hand and yours. Instead, Jesus freely takes it himself. So that from the cross he can look down at you and me, whisper our names and say, I drain this cup for you. For you who have lived in defiance of me, who have hated me, who have opposed me, I drink it all for you. What a savior we celebrate today. But the story is far from over. 
Let's leave the garden and go to Golgotha, to Calvary, to the cross. We know that in between this time, Jesus was beaten. He was whipped 39 times, as maybe you've seen in the Passion of the Christ movie. Probably pretty accurate. He was spit upon. He was mocked. He was crucified and nailed to a cross. And we pick up the story where we'll see our next point is this. Jesus demonstrated incomprehensible love as he experienced and exhausted the full fury of the intense, righteous wrath of God. Look at Matthew 27 with me. Turn over to Matthew 27. We'll look at verses 45 through 50. Jesus is on the cross at this point. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. When Jesus died the violent, bloody death on the cross, he demonstrated incomprehensible love. This kind of love you and I will never fully understand or comprehend. His love for his people and his love for the Father and the Spirit is what prompted him. What kept him on the cross? The nails you say? No. His passion to do the will of his Father and his love for those that he would redeem. Sinners like you and me. That's what held him on the tree. And what a moment this was. Even the sky responds. Three hours of darkness as Jesus is drinking from the cup that he saw in the Garden of Gethsemane. Here on the cross... Jesus is drinking up every last drop of God's anger for you and me, for his people. He is experiencing and exhausting the full fury of the intense, righteous wrath of God for you and for me. Oh, how we need eyes to see it. But even scripture itself draws a veil over what transpired there at the cross. In this moment, Jesus is God-forsaken. He's forsaken by his Father. Jerry Bridges says, The physical suffering that Jesus endured was only a feeble picture of the suffering of his soul. And part of that suffering was for the real forsakenness by his Father, his utter abandonment by God. And so Jesus takes on the sins of his elect in that moment on the cross. All of their sins are piled on him. So he becomes the target of God's righteous wrath. And this is why Matthew tells us in about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Richard Allen Bodie says, Nowhere in the Bible do we encounter any mystery that so staggers the mind and shocks the Christian consciousness as this tortured cry from the lips of our dying Savior. Understand this. Jesus is not questioning his Father as to why he is being forsaken. He is quoting Psalm 22 and fulfilling it. 
Jesus, who lived in closest fellowship with the Father, is in this moment abandoned by the Father. We don't know fully what sense this this happened, what it means, but we know that Jesus was indeed abandoned by the Father as he died as a substitute for our sins. We can't even begin to comprehend what that looks like and what it meant. So R.C. Sproul described this scene of Jesus bearing the sins of his people in the presence of the Father as the most grotesque display of ugliness imaginable. We cannot even begin to imagine the horror that Jesus felt as the sin of his people was placed on him. We cannot imagine the horror that the Father and the Spirit felt as they looked upon Jesus and then turned away It is in this moment that Jesus was forsaken by his Father. He drank the cup of wrath for you and me. Jesus exhausted the cup of wrath. Every last drop, Christian, was consumed by him for you. For those of us who have repented of our sins and trust in him, the cup is empty. Christian, disciple, the cup is empty. Jesus drank every last drop of God's anger against you and your sin. It is gone. He is not angry with you, Christian. For those who have repented and they trust in Jesus Christ, there's not an ounce of God's anger reserved for you. He poured it all out upon his son. Jerry Bridges says, however, as we contemplate with wonder Christ being made sin for us, we must always keep in mind the distinction between Christ's sinlessness in his personal being and his sin bearing in his official liability to God's wrath. He was the sinless sin bearer. Though he was officially guilty as our representative, he was personally the object of the Father's everlasting love and delight. Even as Jesus hung on the cross, bearing our sins and enduring the full fury of God's wrath, he was at the same time the object of his Father's infinite, eternal love. Should this not make us bow in adoration at such matchless love that the Father would subject the object of his supreme delight to his unmitigated wrath for our sake? Jesus demonstrated incomprehensible love as he experienced and exhausted the full fury of the intense, righteous wrath of God. And so the cry of abandonment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, echoed from the cross. R.C. Sproul says that this cry represents the most agonizing protest ever uttered on this planet. It burst forth in a moment of unparalleled pain. It is the scream of the damned for us. Why does Jesus cry out the scream of the damned? So that you and I will never have to. He was damned and condemned by God for your sin and my sin. He cried in agony so that we will never have to. We have all sinned enough in the last 24 hours to deserve a cross death, to deserve eternal punishment in hell forever. And God would be just to pour out his holy, righteous anger on all of us. But instead, he offers amnesty. 
Because Jesus died in our place, we can be forgiven. God treats Jesus like a sinner so that he can treat us sinners that we are as if we were righteous. God treats Jesus like a sinner so that he can treat us the sinners that we are as if we were righteous, as if we had never sinned and broken his commandments, as if we had always obeyed his commandments. That is the good news. That's what the word gospel means. Isn't it good news that God is offering amnesty to rebellious sinners now? It's good news. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the gospel. That God poured his wrath out upon his son for our sins. So that when we confess them and say, I have totally lived for myself. I have totally turned away from you, God. I deserve to die. Forgive me. I trust in Jesus' work for me. When you can say that and you can pray that, you are what the Bible calls born again. You're spiritually dead if you've never said that. But if God so stirs your heart and opens your eyes and you can say, God, forgive me, I have turned away. I was born a sinner. I was conceived in my mother's womb as a sinner. And I gave evidence of that as I lived my life turning away from you. God, please forgive me. Trade my life of sin and defiance and rebellion with Jesus' perfect life. And that's what happened at the cross. Your sins go to Jesus. His perfect life goes to you. And when you can say that and say, God, forgive me, I turn away and I trust in Jesus, you are a Christian. You are born again. Now, we move from the garden to Golgotha, and now we go to the empty grave. Easter is a celebration of the fact that Jesus not only died on the cross, but that God Raised him from the dead, validating his life, validating his payment on the cross for sin. So God raised him up from the dead. He is alive. He came back from the dead. And he can raise you up from the deadness of your uh, spiritual deadness of your trespasses and sins if you trust in him. And one day he will raise you up from the grave even though you die when he comes back to set up his kingdom upon the earth one day. Jesus' resurrection takes hope and rubs it into the face of death. Jesus' resurrection takes hope and life and peace And rubs it into the face of death and says, I have conquered the last enemy. I have come back from the dead. I am alive and I will raise every one of my people on that final day to be with me. To live on the new earth in new glorified bodies forever. That is the gospel, people. That even though you die, you can live again with a brand new body 
that never ever gets sick and never ever sins. There's coming a day when you will be in the presence of a holy God and you will never ever ever sin again. Sin is all you've known since you've been born. It's all you've done. There's coming a day because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, he will make your body new and you will stand in his presence with other believers and you will never ever ever sin again. Understand that I have sinned my whole life. I sin every day, all the time. There's coming a day when Benji Magnus will never ever sin again. That's the hope of the gospel. And if you repent and believe in Jesus, you can experience that too. Romans 4.25 promises us this righteousness, this right standing with God because of Jesus. It says, if righteousness will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and sins and raised for our justification, raised to give us right standing with God. He offers amnesty to you today if you turn from your sin and bow to his lordship and trust in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross through his death and resurrection. There are two kinds of people here today. There are rebels. You have not trusted in Christ. You have not repented of your sins. And if you don't, God will be just in sending you to an eternal hell where you will pay the penalty for your sins for eternity. You will scream the scream of the damned for eternity. And God will be just and right in doing that. So your options today are rebel or repent. You can let Christ stand there for you as he did at Calvary. So your options, rebels, is to keep on rebelling or to repent and receive the amnesty that is offered to you. The second kind of people that are here today are pardoned rebels. You have trusted in the work of Jesus Christ. You were born a rebel, but you've been pardoned because of Jesus. So to you, I say, pardoned rebels, today's a day to rejoice. Oh, pardoned rebels, you've been forgiven and you are clean. Today is a day to rejoice because the contents of the cup the most hideous, the most frightening, the most alarming, the most terrifying, the most petrifying, the most hair-raising, the most spine-tingly, the most blood-curdling, the most bone-chilling, the most horrifying, most nerve-wracking, most fearsome, and most unnerving thing that can happen to any human being has been faced by Jesus Christ for you. Jesus lives. Jesus paid it all. Jesus lives. Jesus paid it all. And the cup of God's wrath can be emptied for you rebels if you repent and trust in him. And the cup has already been emptied for you pardoned rebels. So now it is a time to rejoice. You can do it right where you're at. You can just say, God, forgive me of my sin. You are holy, and I have lived in defiance of you. Would you forgive me? I trust in the gospel. I trust in your word that Jesus died for me. And if you say that, you move from being a rebel to a pardoned rebel. You move from being an enemy to an adopted child of God. That is the gospel. If you want to know more 
what that means. And please, as we sing or when the service is over, come find me, come find another pastor. I'm going to ask some of you mature believers to make your way down here, even as we're singing, and be on the front row to, to help pray with someone and explain the gospel even more. Let's pray. Oh, Father. I'm so overwhelmed that what Jesus did for me, I was an enemy. I was a rebel. It's such wondrous love your son showed. What wondrous love you showed by sending him. That your admiration and love for your son that kept me from you, God, you did not hold back. You were not selfish, but you gave. Thank you. God, for those that don't understand, open their eyes this morning. For those of us who are Christians, God, that though our hearts are heavy, oh God, now would you move us to a time of singing and rejoicing that we are clean in your eyes, that we are forgiven, that we have the righteousness of Christ, God. Yes, this was a heavy message, God, but let, lift the weight from our hearts, oh God, and let us enter into your joy to seeing that Jesus paid it all and that he lives. May pardoned rebels rejoice now, Father, and may you get glory as your son's work goes on display. In his name we pray, amen. Our hope is that today's message empowers you by God's grace to live God's way. For more information, visit us online at gracebath.net.